Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Page 271, lots of ones, 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Penina. Penina had children but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Godfrey, uh, thanks uh, very much indeed. Now do keep your Bibles open to that reading. And um, you've uh, joined today, if you haven't been for a while, or of course many of you come every week, you've joined today on a good day uh, in that we're starting a series on 1 Samuel, as you've uh, heard through the service And uh, we will be starting the series, uh, bizarrely, next week in chapter 22. Why? Because I preached some of it uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of years ago. And uh, so we're going to be looking from chapter 22. And so I thought today it would be good to kind of get the story so far, the the kind of sweep of the book up to chapter 22, which sounds a bit scary for listeners at this point, because you think, my goodness me, this is going to be a long sermon. So we need to pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray as we look at this book, 1 Samuel, both this morning and indeed in the weeks ahead, that it would be um, a book where we learn many wonderful things from you, uh, who you are, your character, uh, more about ourselves and more about all that we need 
and that we may turn again and again to you, our God, the one who provides what we need, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you uh, probably don't need me to tell you that we are just two and a half weeks away from the general election. Now, whether you're someone who is fed up already with all the media coverage and I'm already kind of fed up with me mentioning it because you thought you'd get away from it at church at least for a couple of hours, or someone who's confused about who to vote for, or someone who is loving every minute of it and who's clear and passionate about who should be in number 10 from May the 7th, whoever we are on that spectrum, I imagine most in this nation will agree that we need good leadership. We need leadership that will find a way through the economic struggles of these last years and help us to continue to grow our way out of austerity. The general consensus is that we need leadership that will make good economic decisions while protecting the health service and education, and that we need leadership that will give us security amidst the threat of global terrorism. Now, my point is not a political one. I'm not a political animal. Uh, My point is a very simple one. Wherever we are on the political spectrum, we are looking for leadership. And that is true way beyond party politics. Most of us are looking for guidance morally and ethically in one area or another. In an ever-changing world, the minefield we walk as we make decisions seems to be increasingly fraught with danger. I was speaking to a parent of teenagers earlier this week, and in her view, parenting was getting harder. She said, we've never prayed as hard as we have these last years. We need wisdom in parenting, in the workplace, in how to invest our money for the future. And many are looking for someone to answer the very deepest questions of life. It was four years ago now that we had our one big question survey. We surveyed and asked well over 1,000 people, if you could ask God one question and you knew it would be answered, what would it be? And while the top question was all about the suffering in the world, the second was, what's the meaning of life? Deep down, people want answers, wanting to know where, where all this is heading wanting to know what is the point of our day-to-day existence. And when we begin to ask questions of that magnitude, we're sure to ask who on earth is up to the task of leading us. No politician, no statesman, no lecturer can answer those sort of questions. And that is why as we turn to 1 Samuel this term, we turn to a book that is thoroughly relevant to our everyday situation because 1 Samuel is all about the search for a leader, Now, the context of 1 Samuel is actually found in the book of Judges. Um, If you've still got your Bible open to 1 Samuel, just flip back through the book of Ruth, back a few pages to the book of Judges. Page 266 is the page number um, if you have a church Bible. And the very, very last verse of Judges, Judges chapter 21 And verse 25 gives us the historical setting for the book of 1 Samuel. Look at uh, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. The nation of Israel in those days was rudderless, uh, bordering on anarchy. Everyone did their own thing. There was no leader in Israel. And while the book of Ruth comes next in our Bibles, historically, the very next thing we read is just five pages later at the beginning of 1 Samuel, page 271, 1 Samuel, chapter 1 and verse 1. And if you're taking notes, here's your first heading, Samuel, God's word to lead us. 
Look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1, uh, read uh, so well just now for us by Godfrey. I'm going to try and do as good a job, but I doubt I will. Verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. It's a pretty hard verse to read with all these uh, strange names and places as well. It probably means nothing to us. And I don't know how it is when you read your Bible at home, but when you read those verses, are you tempted to jump over them, think nothing of them, the names, the details? They don't seem very important, but they are. They often mean nothing to us because we're not Jewish, because we're not steeped in the Old Testament, or because we're not around, we weren't around at the time. But when we do the hard work and understand the details, so we begin to understand what's going on. However, on this occasion, even if we did the hard work of understanding these names, and even if we were Jewish and steeped in the Old Testament, and even if we were living at the, whole, uh, at the time, as we read verse 1, we think, what? Who? Where? And the point is, Elkanah, this man, this certain man that it speaks about in verse 1, this, this fellow Elkanah was a nobody, the point is none of this kind of even made sense to anybody at the time. He was the descendant of an unimportant family who hailed from an unimportant town. And that is the point. It's very obscurity should grab us. You see, back in Judges, we'd heard that there was no king and uh, the, the, the whole place was kind of leadershipless, rudderless. And then we hear, verse 1, there was a certain man, and our ears prick up. Who is this certain man then that we're waiting for? He's a no one, a nobody, and with a bleak domestic situation as well. Look at verse 2. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. I wonder if, as you read that, you feel the pain of living in Elkanah's household Hannah was childless and anyone who's ever experienced that knows the agony of it Hannah was one of Elkanah's two wives significantly Hannah is named first which suggests that she was probably the first wife and it's precisely because Hannah couldn't bear children that Elkanah took a second wife in order to carry on the family line And if that wasn't painful enough for Hannah, look down to verse 6 and see how Elkanah's second wife, Penina, treated poor Hannah. Verse 6, because the Lord had closed her, Hannah's womb, her rival, Penina, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and wouldn't eat. She was so desperately unhappy. It was probably causing her some eating disorder. As if childlessness wasn't painful enough, there living in her own home was a second wife who had children and cruelly and vindictively taunted Hannah about her childlessness. And that agonising situation caused Hannah to question God's promises. Look at uh, verse 10. In bitterness of soul... Hannah wept much and prayed. See, Hannah would have known her Bible. Uh, She'd have probably known Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 14. There's no need to look it up. You can if you like. It's page 187. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 7, 14, God assured his people as they went into the promised land with these words. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless. Nor will any of your livestock be without young. Here's a promise that even animals in Israel would be able to bear young, but poor Hannah couldn't. So she'd have felt less important to God than even a farm animal. Her name, Hannah, means grace. But where was God's grace in her life? She may well have asked, where is God? It's the sort of question that people do ask when they go through such personal pain. It's the sort of real question asked by real people who are real believers. And so as we open the book of Samuel, we read of a seemingly hopeless situation in a seemingly unimportant family. And the point is, it is a micro picture of the nation of Israel. You see, Elkanah, the husband, is a nobody, just like the little nation of Israel. It's a nothing nation compared to all the other great nations in the world. Hannah is barren and it appears without God blessing her. And that is how it is with the nation of Israel, or so it appears. And Hannah has a rival who cruelly taunts her. Just as the Philistines and the other nations around taunt little Israel. And God's answer to these crises comes in the most unexpected way. In verses 10 and 11, Hannah begs the Lord, cries out to the Lord for a child and promises that if he gives her a child that she will dedicate this child to the Lord. And then look down to the uh, verse 19. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Samuel was born. And the most crucial thing about Samuel, as we look through the next chapters, is that Samuel grows up to be a prophet, There's no need again to look at it, but we we discover this in chapter 3, verse 20. Samuel was a prophet. Samuel, the prophet, was the one who would bring God's word to the nation. And here's the big point. Israel needed a leader, and the first thing God gave them was his word. Because God's people are to be led by God's word. Indeed, as the story unfolds, it is as Samuel brings the word of God that the people of God are given the leader that God provides. And this is very significant for us today, for God's people today, as we look for a leader, as we look for leadership to help us morally and ethically, as we come up against the everyday issues of parenting and how to live our lives in the workplace and how to use our money and time and how to prepare for the future and as we ask the big questions of life as we look for leadership God has not left us rudderless he has given us his word and we, we, God's people need to hear this Even those of us who are sitting here thinking, yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, okay, Paul, we know the Bible's important. Even those of us who know that God gives us his word and leads us through his word and guides us through his word, we need to hear it because in reality, 
In our everyday lives, as we engage with the real issues that really matter, we often fail to turn to God's word to lead us. Rather than have God's word as our guide, we are very often swayed by what the world says. That is exactly the big problem in Israel in Samuel's day as well. And that brings us to the second point. Saul, the leader the people wanted. See, come with me now to chapter 8 as we start to make our way through the book. If you like football, this is kind of a match of the day. This is the edited highlights. Um, and um, chapter 8, really, well, it's not so much a highlight as a sort of crunching tackle. Um, this is a, a bad moment, as you see the people of God sort of going in with studs up on Samuel. There's a red card any moment. Sorry, I'm pushing the illustration too far. Give you time to turn over to chapter 8. By the time we reach chapter 8, little Samuel has now grown up and he is God's prophet in Israel. He brings God's word to the people to lead them. But devastatingly, in chapter 8 and verse 5, the elders of Israel went to Samuel and said this. You're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, they displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. Well, of course it displeased Samuel. What a disaster this was. They were asking for a king, but God was their king. So as we read verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8, this is a rejection of God. We don't want you as our king, we want another king. And you see there in verse 5, they asked for a king because they wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted to be like the world. And so as God spoke to his people through Samuel, through his word, he warned the people of the consequences of having a king, of, of being like the world. And you can read what the Lord said in verses 7 to 18. We don't have time to look at it now. But still, despite the warning, they wouldn't listen to Samuel. They didn't want to listen to God's word and they continued to ask for a king. Verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Do you hear it again? We want to be like the nations around us. We want to be like the world. We want to follow the world's ways. And again, what happened in that moment should be a great warning to us. For desperately, we see it in the church today, wanting to be like the world. We see Christians following the world rather than God's word. We see churches choosing their leader by the same criteria as the world, choosing perhaps a youth leader because they're trendy and can play the guitar rather than someone who is of godly character and who will teach God's word. We find Christian leaders following business models of leadership, not following the way God's word leads us. And then with the big issues of the day, the issues of gender distinctives and sexuality, Many of the national church leaders are saying that if we're not like the world, then the world will reject us as irrelevant. People will stop coming to church, they say, unless we start saying the things the world wants to hear. Now, apart from the fact that we're not meant to be like the world, the argument is hopelessly flawed, isn't it? 
Because if we were just like the world, if we're saying nothing distinctive, why would the world bother coming to us anyway? If the church proclaims the same message as the world, I know I wouldn't bother getting out of bed on a Sunday morning. I'd have a lie-in and a leisurely breakfast and read the newspaper. Here is a world that needs a different kind of leadership, a world all at sea. The world is crying out for leadership that can take us through the moral maze and give us answers to the big questions we face. The church is meant to be different, not to have the same message as the world. So for Israel to ask for a king was a rejection of God and of his word. But they insisted, and so the Lord gave them a king, and the king they got was Saul. And so as we study 1 Samuel this term, and every time we come face to face with Saul, we begin to learn where worldly leadership leaves us. And that will be really important for us to see because we will be tempted, just like the people of old, to want to be like the world. When we look at Saul, we'll see what a disaster Saul was and what a disaster it is when God's people follow the world's ways. Well, they did go for that. They wanted a leader like the world, but God is a God of grace and a God of glorious second chances. And so third, we come to this heading, David, the leader after God's own heart. Come with me to chapter 16 now. Page 287, chapter 16. And verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? At this point, you see, uh, the Lord has said that Saul is not going to be the king. How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. In a way, verse 1 of chapter 16 is a summary of the chapters that have gone before and it sets up the rest of the book. The Lord has rejected Saul as king. Samuel is to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king and most crucial of all, that last line in verse 1, this new king has been chosen by the Lord. This is the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. And so as Samuel arrived in Bethlehem, Jesse and his sons stood before Samuel and we read... Verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And why was Samuel so sure that Eliab was the Lord's anointed? Verse 7, Samuel considered Eliab's appearance and his height. Eliab was tall, dark and impressive. Well, we don't know whether he was dark, but he was tall and impressive to look at. But here's the important thing, and we haven't been able to look at this verse, but it's crucial The last tall, impressive young man to pass before Samuel was Saul. And what a disaster he was. You see, here's our problem. We can only see what's in front of our eyes. Uh, As Joe was saying for the uh, all-in talk, uh, you know, well, how do we choose a leader, whether it's the leader of a football team or a rugby team? We can only choose, choose leaders based on what we can see of them. We can't see what makes them tick. This is, of course, one of the problems with the leaders in the election debates. They tell us to trust them, but can we? 
And I'm not saying we can't. I'm just saying we don't know. We don't know what their motives are, whether they want the best for the nation or not. We don't know whether they want to serve or to be served. We don't know whether they want to use public office for the good of others or whether they want power for their own ends. We don't know any of these things because like Samuel, we can't see any more than what's in front of our eyes. So, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. See, verse 7 kind of underscores the flakiness of our impressions, how we can be so taken in by what we see. Samuel saw Eliab tall and impressive. And you can see him reaching for his horn of oil to anoint him, thinking, this is the man. Samuel would have anointed him in a flash had the Lord not jumped in with the words, verse 7, don't consider his appearance or his height. And that is true not just when it comes to the people we look to lead us, but it's also true of the things we look to save us. We do look to things and we we think, oh, that's so impressive. That's going to help me. That's going to sort my problem out. Sometimes the Lord must save us from our saviours, our chosen solutions are not actually the solutions we think they are. This chapter is saying, don't trust what you can see. Beware of following anyone or anything because they look impressive. Well, that leaves the big question. Well, who can we follow if we've only got our eyes to see? Well, simply we need to follow the one who is chosen by the Lord. For the Lord can see everything. And as we heard earlier, second half of verse 7, crucially, he can see the heart This famous verse, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The rest of the chapter tells us that David wouldn't be our choice. You see, when when Jesse's sons were lined up and as um, Samuel looked at each one, David hadn't even bothered to turn up because nobody thought that he would be the one. He doesn't look impressive. He doesn't look very powerful. Of course, it turns out that the Lord's chosen one, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, is not the one that we would naturally choose, but he is the leader we need. And we'll see that as the story unfolds as we look at these chapters from chapter 22. He is the one we need because he is the one who's able to save We see it right through these chapters, but we see it supremely just one chapter later in chapter 17 as David comes face to face with Goliath, this well-known and probably most famous chapter of all of 1 Samuel. We haven't got time to go through it in detail. If you want to think about it more, I preached on it back in January 2013 and the sermon is on the website, so you can listen to that if you want to. But in summary, in chapter 17, there are God's people cowering in the trenches with Goliath the undefeated Philistine champion taunting them. Saul, Israel's king of the time, can't defeat Goliath. The people in the trenches can't defeat Goliath. And so the people face only one future, defeat, captivity and death. That's all their future holds. But David, the shepherd boy, steps in. Of course, he looks to be in no chance. He's not big enough or strong enough to wear Saul's armour. And all he holds in his hand is a shepherd's slingshot. 
He's confronted by a man mounting Goliath, nine foot tall and built like a refrigerator. But as weak as David looks, we know he's God's anointed, God's Messiah, God's chosen leader of God's chosen people. And as you know, he defeats Goliath. And years later came another from Jesse's line, a son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. He looked ordinary and at times very weak. Never did he look more weak than when he hung on a Roman cross. But he was the Lord's anointed. And as he hung on the cross, he was defeating our enemy, sin and death. He stepped in to do what we cannot do. We have no answers to the great problems of sin and death. We can't defeat death, but he could and he did as he died on the cross and rose again. In our need for a leader, this book of Samuel will tell us that God has given his word to lead us. It will warn us of the dangers of being led by the world and it will point us to the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the leader we need. And we need this book because let's not fool ourselves that naturally we would choose Jesus as our leader. And let's not fool ourselves as Christians today that we do follow Jesus' lead as we should. Too often we choose the souls of this world because we want to be like the world. I'm talking to Christians now. Let's be honest, even as Christians, we often don't choose Jesus and his leadership. We don't want to go the way of suffering. Why would I want to suffer? What good will that do me now I want to go the way of the world and comfort? We don't like having to stand up for Jesus. Why would I do that when I can have a peaceful, quiet life? I want to blend in with the world. We don't like it when his word tells us that we have to go against the culture because we quite like the culture. We too are so easily tempted to be just like the world. But we'll see through this book of 1 Samuel, and not least of all in the two chapters uh, that end the book, that to follow the wrong leader, to follow the world and the world's leaders will be a disaster. As unlikely as he looks, following God's leader and following his ways in his word is the way that brings light and delight and life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that to a rudderless, leadershipless world and people, you bring your word to teach us who the right leader is that we should follow. We confess to you our temptation to want to follow the ways of the world. And we ask as we study this book of 1 Samuel over these next weeks that we'd see what a disaster and what a danger it is to go that way. We ask you then to speak to us powerfully and to remind us and indeed to persuade us through this book that it is right to follow your leader, the Lord Jesus, and him alone. And so as we do that, may it make us stronger and lead us into the way of life and the way 
that is truly joyful. And we ask it through Christ our Lord.